the backside of life, well, Abram and Sarai would in fact experience a miracle. And God would give him a child. Isaac would be born. It was a miracle. God gets the last laugh. God, who, this is Sarai's response when she was told this by Abram. She laughed. And yet God would bring His promise to reality. And Abraham, we're told, is justified by faith. And his justification by faith, we're told in James, is revealed by his actions. Because those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ also obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe in God by faith want to obey God in faith. And so through a miracle, even in old age, Isaac was born. Isaac grows up. And then he has Jacob and Esau. Two individuals, a part of the people of God who God chose for different reasons. And Jacob, the deceiver, the younger, through deception, but by grace, becomes the blessed son, the younger son, and becomes Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. We find out Israel ends up going into Egypt. Joseph is by by God's sovereign hand, delivered into Egypt. God sent him there even though he was sold there by his brothers. And Joseph rose rose up in prominence. And then we find out that these tribes ended up having to come to Egypt. And we find that for about 400 years, the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. And yet God blessed them and ended up delivering His people from Egypt miraculously, through blood, and by faith, the people of God were delivered. The enemies ended up at the bottom of the sea. You don't want to be an enemy of God. God delivers His people miraculously. They go into the wilderness. They complain a little bit, a lot. God continues to provide through their complaining. And we see through all of this, through all of this, even through God's miraculous provision that the people of God are still not grateful for the grace of God. They get the law of God. And they wander in the promised land, disobeying God's law, already stumbling and running full speed into idolatry. And then finally, through Joshua, they're brought into the promised land. And in the promised land, they get some things right, but they get a lot of things wrong. They're told what to do. Wipe out these Canaanite cities. Don't put up with idolatry. Burn them down. Don't be syncretized with them. Don't learn all you can from them. Burn down those Asherah poles. Tear down idols and strongholds. Take the ground and the land that God is giving you. And they go in and they obey a little bit, but they disobey a lot. So as we speed up a little bit, the people of God would be led by judges. Hey, kid, kids, who would the people of God be led by? Judges. Okay. So God would establish judges in the land. During the age of the Republic of Israel in the city of Canaan, before, or in the nation of Canaan, the Promised Land, before there were kings, disputes would be settled by these judges. And these judges, some of them would fail mightily, but here's what would happen. The people of God would sin and rebel against God, a judge would be raised up, and the people would be delivered. And we get these images, just like we got with Egypt, and just like we got with God's people being redeemed through blood and faith out of Egypt, We see the same redemptive story repeated where a judge would be the deliverer of God's people. And over and over again, you see this pattern of the people of God sinning against God and then God delivering those who had sinned against him. 
We see God's favor upon his people, even through their rebellion. And so judges were raised up. And then, after that, there were kings in the land. And here comes the man named Saul. And then David, then Solomon, then Rehoboam. And then the nation splits from the north to the south. Israel and ten tribes. Judah, along with Benjamin. Different kings, and you hear throughout First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the stories of wickedness and the rise and fall of the people of God, ups and downs. They, they just can't get things right. Even with the good kings, the people of God continued to sin against God. Even though they had the covenants, the law, the priests, the prophets, the judges, and the kings, they still failed to obey God. In the Old Testament, it ends with 400 years of silence where God does not send a prophet. And the people could not hear from the prophets. No prophet sent to Israel. 400 years is a long time. And and, in 400 years, it would have been easy to think, God has abandoned us, there's nothing else, there's no one else coming. And even though throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this anticipation that this suffering servant, this Messiah would come, it's out there, really after 400 years, God has done this with us. Enter Jesus. Jesus was announced and born as the promised Messiah. In the very deepest end of theology, Jesus, who is fully God, would become fully man. The hypostatic union. He was fully and fully. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we hear this announcement about what Jesus will do. The angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's so crucial. Jesus came on a mission to save his people from their sins. Now there's specific theological, just some rich things in this passage. Jesus didn't just come for people in general. Jesus came for individuals, his very people, his bride, to seek and to save and to rescue his very bride. And if you have repented and trusted in your sins, Jesus came to seek you out and to save you and to save his people from their sins. That means that Jesus came to not just make it possible for you to be saved, he came to actually do something for you. He came on a mission to to do something, to accomplish something, not just to open up a way for people to get saved. That's a huge difference. He didn't just come. His mission wasn't, I'm going to come and make a way for people to be saved, and maybe some people will trust in me. Maybe not, but maybe, maybe some people would. No, he came on a specific mission, and he accomplished his mission, by the way, to save his people from their sins. It's particular, it's specific. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you don't know the special love of God, this passage can give you insight to that. We're told as husbands not to love our wives like we love all women. That would be very strange. Honey, I love you, but I I love all women the same as I love you. That would be awful. It would be horrific. Um... God has a special love for His people. You, you can't get around that in the Scriptures. He specifically and particularly loves you. 
There is a general way we can talk about the love of God for people out there, for non-Christians. But there is a special way he loves his bride. And that is the foundation for the command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Particularly, specifically, know things about her and love her in a way that Christ has specifically loved his people uniquely and different than how he has loved the world. And you need to know that. Jesus came to do something, and he did it. And we see the reality of all of these so-called hopes in the Old Testament. We, we just said in the Old Testament, we saw the covenants, the law, the priests, the prophets, the judges, the kings, and the people of God still, still failed. But Jesus came as fully God and fully man, and we see that Jesus is the, the law-keeping, covenant-keeping one. He's the one... With the covenant people of God, he is the one that fulfills the covenant people's side of the covenant for them because they continued to break their side of the covenant over and over and over again. So Jesus came and he obeyed that side of the covenant that, that we're commanded, obey God. He comes and obeys God and therefore God would fulfill both sides of the covenant. We would receive the benefits of the law keeping, covenant-keeping Jesus. Jesus is the true priest. He's the true Aaron that does not, instead of properly offering sacrifice to God, instead of properly in the place of people seeing that their sins would be forgiven, he, he doesn't sell us out to make a golden calf. He is the true priest in the Old Testament. Or the true prophet. He is the real and the true prophet who came to speak the very words of God. He is the Logos of God. He, he is God Himself speaking. We, we hear in His words the very words of God. He is God in the flesh. He's the true prophet. He is the best judge. There has never been a judgment that He has made that is wrong. All that He does is right. We may scratch our heads. We may shake our fists. We may walk around in confusion about why the world is the way it is. But He has never once made a mistake and He never will make a mistake. And as your children's knowledge is limited and their wisdom is lacking compared to yours, so too ours to God, but in an infinitely greater degree. He is the true judge who brings down his rule rightly in all circumstances. Jesus is the king of kings. I love Hank did. Oh, by the way, Zach and Cheyenne are married. I love it. 19 and 20, my boys are still astounded because I said, Zach, he's, he's, a teenage, he's a teenager and he's a man. And they're like, what? You can be a teenager and a man? Yeah, you can. I want my boys to be. I hope you want your sons to be. Don't settle for silly, foolish adolescence. Don't expect that out of your kids. Expect them to be grown men and women as teenagers. Expect that. Pray for that. Disciple and expect that that's, that's what's going to happen. Don't just expect they're going to party and act like, act a fool for a decade. But I loved what Hank said, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but instead of saying, uh, now by the power given to me by God in the state of Illinois, he didn't say that. Do you remember what he said? Does anybody, did you? It's on video somewhere. It's on video somewhere. It was so good. It was like, uh, by, by the authority of God and 
and the one who is the ruler of all kings and authorities of this earth, Jesus Christ, I pronounce you man and wife. It was awesome. I mean, yeah. It's like the earth was shaking, like, yeah. I mean, they're like doubly married. That was awesome. Uh, Jesus is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. I hope you know that. I hope you know that. Uh, the most powerful kings in the world, just like Nebuchadnezzar at the very bidding of God, could be in a field eating dung. I mean, tomorrow, this instant, um, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's, that's why we obey Jesus. And if the commands of the state come against that, we, we obey King Jesus. Always. Every time we obey Jesus. Um, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the promised one. The promised Messiah who fulfilled all the prophecies. He's the ram. He, he's also the ram that was caught in the thicket. In, uh, in Genesis 22, the slaughtered one that Israel may go free. The imagery is everywhere when you look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book about Jesus. Jesus tells us that in John 5 and Luke 24. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. The only way to miss Him is to sinfully suppress the truth. Jesus obeyed the law that was given to the people through Moses. He obeyed and lived the best life that was ever lived, and it led Him to the cross. I want us to consider now and connect some of the dots here about the first Adam and the second Adam. In the Bible, the first Adam is Adam in the garden. And the second Adam is Jesus Christ Himself. And the parallels with the Garden of Gethsemane, the parallels of Jesus in His Passion Week and the Garden of Eden are astounding. The parallels of Jesus throughout His whole life and, and Eden are absolutely astounding. Now, it's interesting uh, that Jesus came and when He was tempted by the devil, He didn't doubt the Word. He quoted the Word. And he fought off the enemy and did what Adam should have done. These connections, again, are everywhere. You just got to see them. Look, look, look at your Bible. It, Thus saith the Lord. And that's still our attack against the enemy. The enemy shoots his arrows, but here's what God has to say about it. Take that. Jesus fought off. And it wasn't in a lush garden. It was in a desert. It wasn't with everything around him. It was after fasting and praying. And Jesus did not blame his wife. He took responsibility for his wife. I think it was R.C. Sproul Jr. that said, Adam said, don't blame me, blame my wife. Jesus said, don't blame my wife, blame me. The second Adam, he died for his wife, the church. He didn't throw her under the bus. He died for. He took upon himself the curse that was promised in the garden. This curse is a fleshly curse, not just a spiritual curse. It's uh, the Gnostic heresy. The, the Gnosticism was this idea that, that everything in the material world is, is evil. And the only, only reality is the spiritual world. Like everything's spiritual, that, that's where the good is. Christianity teaches the body matters and the soul matters. And salvation, what Christ came to do, is of both. 
body and soul. He, he, he rose bodily. He had flesh and bone. And he came to die for the sins of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Even though he never sinned, he took the, took the punishment of our life. Like we, I think we so often forget. It's just so good to reflect on this week in and week out. We so often forget that the cross shows us what we've earned in our life. Hell itself shows us what our life has merited. And if life is this big merit game, a, a big measuring of the scales, good and bad, the cross declares to us what that, that scale looks like. Each and every one of you. Each and every one of you. Me. Our life has merited the wrath of God. Judgment. We sinned against God. That's what the cross shows us. And yet Jesus took that punishment upon Himself. And we know the great exchange, how beautiful. We just sang about it. And He gave us the very life that He lived. That's what's so glorious about the cross of Christ. He never sinned. We sinned. He took on our sin and He gave us His life. That's how He saved His people. It's called the great exchange. It's found in no other religion. There's no other message like it. We always have the market on this message. Because every other religious message in the world, everything that people have drank hook, line, and sinker, declares it's up to you. Every other religion in the world declares that. And here is Jesus coming and saying, actually, it's up to me. And I'm coming for you. And that's a totally different message. There's freedom there. There's freedom there. And here's what I found, that there are many Christians, this is something that I walked around with for years, not understanding. I didn't understand the grace of God. I didn't understand the cross of Christ. I was saved, and yet it was like there were still blinders. And, and, and by the way, saved people are not saved because of their perfect theology. We're saved in spite of our imperfect theology. You don't under, have to understand everything about the cross to be saved. You express the faith that God has given you in the perfect Savior. And so those, you know, Ari and Judah getting baptized today, they're going to know more about Jesus in, in five years, in one year than they do right now. We're not baptizing them because they know everything there is to know. We're, we're baptizing them because they're known by their Savior. We can't get to God, but God came for us. And, and uh, here's the question about resurrection, tying it into the beginning. But how do we know the cross worked? Like, how do we know it wasn't just a simply another death on the cross? Because we find out in, in church history uh, that you know, Nero lined the streets with Christians who were crucified. Uh, like thousands upon thousands of Christians in Jerusalem and now throughout the Roman Empire, crucified as Christ was crucified. So how, how can we know that it wasn't just another death on the cross? Now remember, if he didn't come back, we should be pitied. Everything is in vain and everybody should feel sorry for us. But in fact, the resurrection did happen and it's true and it is consequential. Okay, now we're back in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Hold on. 
Here's what the enemy continues to do with verses like that. Yeah, but is there historical evidence? Yes, there is historical evidence. There is. A mountain of it, actually. But I don't need that mountain of evidence because God just told me right here in His Word, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That is what I need to hear from God Himself. Christ has been raised from the dead. And yeah, there's mountains of evidence, but this is the greatest evidence. It's self-authenticating that God Himself has told you. Where is a better source than God Himself? God tells us Christ has been raised from the dead. It settles it. He's alive. Amen. 21. For as by a man came death... By a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This passage is interesting because it tells us basically there's been two men who have ever lived in this, in this world. There's Adam and Jesus. In Adam all die, and in Christ all live. And unless we think... You know, universalism, if you think just in verse 21, for as by a man came death, all, or verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. If you just take that verse in isolation, you're like, wait a minute, in Adam all die, but in Christ all made alive. So, so like everyone. But then there's a clarifying verse in 23. It says, at his coming, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's the all in the second half. All is connected to those who belong to Christ. Those who do not belong to Christ have no hope of resurrection. The only hope of bodily resurrection in the future, the only hope of eternal peace with God is belonging to Christ. And those who do not belong to Christ have no claim on verse 22. You have to belong to Christ. So here's how this bodily resurrection thing works, okay? Remember... Adam's fall was consequential. We've experienced the result of Adam's fall. So too is Christ's resurrection consequential. In Christ all shall live. Now Christ first, Christ the first fruits, and at His coming, those who belong to Christ. So as Christ rose from the dead, we are also going to rise from the dead. This is about a, a body. Heaven is not, and the eternal state is not just the ethereal Care bear, bouncing around in the clouds, non-physical eternity. Eternity is very physical. It's as physical as Jesus' resurrected body. It's as physical and more so than the earth that we walk on. The wood that this was shaped, or that this pulpit was shaped into. It, it has substance to it, matter to it. Jesus really raised from the dead bodily. That's why he could say, put your hand in my side. And Thomas could put his hand and feel, feel the wounds of his body that were now healed, the scars that were there. As Jesus raised from the dead, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will put on this resurrected body. You can read that through the rest of, of, of 1 Corinthians 15 there. Those who belong to him. So th this takes us to the very end of the book. The first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The promise that we have as believers is that our souls are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven and cast as, you hear me say it all the time, as far as the east is from the west. As far as the, that's the north and the south. But uh, east and 
east and the west. As far as the east is from the west, so our souls are cast, so our sins are cast away. But also, your body matters. Your body matters. And God has made it not just Eden-like future, but a better future for eternity that this body is jars of clay now. This body will waste away. Everyone in here will die either through car wreck, old age, or sickness and disease. It is inevitable we will all die. But our bodies, the promise is that our bodies will be resurrected. And we will be saved, total salvation, for all of eternity. And that's why our hope, we hear things like heaven, and sometimes if you're like me, you think about the eternal state and you can think, man, seriously, like, I, I can have a great day fishing and be done fishing at the end of the day. Like, going to be bored of fishing. Love the whole day, but ready to be done. And I, and I love fishing. Like, even things that I love have a shelf life where you begin to be bored. But this eternal state, we're told, and the presence of God at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're told that, like, okay, never once were our physical bodies, soul, body, if you're a dichotomous, spirit, soul, and body, never will our bodies or our existence for eternity, never once will we be bored. It will be full joy forevermore, and it won't be exhausting. Because if you think about the times you've been exhilarated or experienced the most joy in your life, to think about that for eternity, like every second, like millennia forward, can almost be like it's exhausting. Like, I... I just need a, I need a nap. But we have a perishable body right now. Then we will have an imperishable, imperishable body like Jesus who is the first fruits. And we will be with him and we will reign on this earth whether it's exploded and remade or with everything's restored. I'm on the second half, latter, latter half for me. Uh, it's completely restored. We'll be here Forever and ever and ever and never once will our imperishable bodies feel joint pain. Never once will be walking down the stairs and think, my Achilles might snap right now. <laughs> and we'll never be bored. We'll never be tired. And we won't be exhausted about that. Now, it's, it's unimaginable. I mean, like, you just can't, it's almost exhausting trying to think about that. If you try to map it out and just try to process the facts that we know of the eternal state, there's enough of them there for us to just say, God, I just trust you because it's overwhelming. And as the sin of Adam, and this is what I want you to see, as the sin of Adam brought spiritual death, and it had these ramifications and physical death to people, and it cursed the earth, as it was like this shockwave, invisible shockwave that went and then went out in ripple effect all through history and all through this world. Jesus comes, live a, lives a perfect life, and he stands and takes the brunt of that ripple effect, the curse of the fall, the effects of Adam, stands, takes it fully, resurrects from the dead, and reverses that curse. Death, Adam, will not have his day throughout eternity because Christ is alive. And when Christ resurrected, it was like this eternally larger sonic boom that went out and went forward. And we see it, the effects of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is even powerful enough to save those who God, by forbearance, had saved before Christ came. It was like this backwards and forwards event that changed everything. 
The resurrection of Christ is massive. So the death and resurrection of Jesus, if the death of Adam led to spiritual death and physical death and a cursed earth, so the death and resurrection of Jesus brings spiritual life, our sins are forgiven, spiritual life to people, and then over time lifts that curse from the earth, and the resurrection is the great unwinding and restoring of all that was lost through the curse and the sin of Adam. This is the best story ever told. It's the true story that all of the stories that you read about, you read about Narnia, you read about Lord of the Rings, and I know Noah's probably read all those and has those memorized right there, that 15-year-old young man. And you hear all these stories, and it's this story, it's echoes of eternity of people trying to grasp what this real true story is. It's what Christ has done. In fact, the resurrection is so massive that the earth itself, the very earth itself is crying out for glorification. That Christ would return, that Christ would make things ultimately and finally that the consummation would come and that everything would be right. Romans 8. You can go ahead and turn there. We're going to finish there. Romans 8. Nineteen to twenty-one. Listen to this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation, revelation, revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who was subjected to it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free. So here's the deal: the fall, creation was subjected to futility. But then, this creation, verse 21, that creation itself would be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself, everyone longing for this glorification, this what happened to Jesus happening to His bride, His people. Creation itself is crying out, the sons of God, come and reign and rule over us. And here's what I want you to see. Because of the resurrection, glorification is inevitable. Glorification is is inevitable. The second Adam, Jesus, is more powerful than the first Adam. And because He is alive, we are not in our sins. Remember, if He's not alive, we should be pitied and we're still in our sins. But if He is alive, then those who belong to Him are not in their sins anymore. And because He's alive, your sins are taken care of. They were accepted by the Father. The work of Christ was accepted by the Father. He ascended in and was welcomed in. Your sins are taken care of. And your glorification, even though we have eternal life right now, we have an eternal state coming. And it is guaranteed. It is inevitable. It is, an, is as inevitable as your sins are being forgiven right now because of the resurrection. Romans 8, 28-30. Listen to this and we'll be done. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And by the way, there's a proof text you can put in your pocket no matter what you're going through. And walk out of here knowing the goodness of God to you. There is nothing in your life that can come into your life that God's not working for your good. Nothing. 
Sidebar over. 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There it is. Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. The first fruits of the resurrection. And then, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, this is said in a past tense. This, this is our, it's a done deal. Okay, it's a done deal. Now think about this. We're not yet glorified, are we? Like, do we, anybody, anybody else feel like their Achilles tendon is going to snap walking down the stairs? Yes, Sean back there. Terry. Hey, he was raising his hand. I wasn't just calling him out. Looking for people that I think are feeble right now. Uh, if he rose from the dead and you're, by his resurrection you're justified, your sins are forgiven. As surely as he is alive, your sins are forgiven. This is tied in together. You're not in your sins because he has been raised from the dead. Now listen to this. This is just so beautiful. So if you're justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification is as secure as all these other things. If you've been called, if you've been justified, if you've been predestined, if you've been foreknown, surely then you will be, it's a done deal, glorified. The resurrection is our eternity. The hope of Easter, the hope of resurrection is that your sins are forgiven and your eternity is secure. If you are justified, he will also glorify. He also glorified. Friends, what Christ has done is yours. Truly, all he did in his life, death, and resurrection flows to us by grace and by grace alone. Eternity is going to be glorious. And it's already glorious now. Because he lives... Thank you, the Gaithers. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. That's the Gaithers, right? Yeah. And we cannot just face tomorrow. We can face the rest of the day no matter what we have. Because he lives and because we too shall live, because we already live in Christ spiritually, we cannot just face today those awkward meetings you might have with family over the deviled egg. But you can also enjoy today because the same power, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. You don't have to just face tomorrow. You can enjoy tomorrow. You can enjoy your life. Your eternity is secure. And nobody else in this world knows that except Christians. Only the beloved, only those who are in Christ Jesus, those who belong to him, have these precious and true promises. You belong to the God of the universe. Your eternity is secure. And as surely as Jesus is alive, your sins are forgiven and your glorification is secure. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Easter. We thank you that your life, death, and resurrection is more consequential than Adam's death, than his sin. We thank you, Jesus, for coming for us. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to do this for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes and turning our attention to the work of Jesus. 
It's our joy to sing to you, and in a minute it's going to be our joy to receive communion, and it's going to be our joy to celebrate new spiritual life through baptism. We want to honor you. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would repent of their sins. You'd grant them repentance. I pray that they would repent of their sins, and they would trust in you, Jesus, and they would be saved right now. And for those who are in here, help us just to enjoy all that you've done for us. Thank you, God, that you have known us from the beginning to the end, that you have saved us, and that we are yours. And help us to enjoy that precious security. Help us to enjoy that precious, empowering grace that walks us out of here, leads us out of here, wanting to go out on mission for the Lord. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust you will.